Well, amen. How's everyone doing? Good? Good. Hey, well, we got some work to do today. So Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be at. So if you have a Bible, I hope you do, you can turn there or turn your phone on to Luke 2 or your iPad or whatever the case may be. We're, we got kind of a big text to cover this morning. So um, I asked what your strangest Christmas tradition was. Anyone want to share what, they, what that is? Anyone? No one. Okay, well, I'm going to share a few with you. Uh, so for us, the Oshman family, we've spent some time living in Japan and in the Czech, Recub- Czech, Czech Republic. So we've been exposed to some, some strange traditions I'll share with you in a second. But for us, uh, it just kind of, we, we took it on from some of the other missionaries there. Christmas Eve, we eat uh, Japanese curry. So, you know, nothing says Christmas like Japanese curry. Uh, but that's our thing. Uh, but in Japan, do you, do you know what they eat? Well, so, so in the 1970s, uh, Japan was turning their attention to the West, and they wanted to, uh, as much as possible, take on American culture and all that. And so they, they saw Christmas, and, and they've embraced it. They've embraced uh, not, not Jesus, but they've embraced uh, Black Friday now. They've embraced uh, a lot of uh, Christmas trees and Santa Claus. They love all that. But in November of 1970, Kentucky Fried Chicken ran an ad in Japan called Kentucky Fried Christmas. And uh, on Kentucky Fried Christmas, they convinced Japanese people that that's what Americans eat on Christmas Day. And so Japanese people love Kentucky Fried Chicken on Christmas Day. You need to, it's too late now if you wanted that in Japan because you had to order that weeks ago because there's going to be lines out the door. It's crazy Kentucky Fried Christmas. Uh, Somehow, uh, kudos to the marketing campaign uh, of KFC on that one. Uh, But uh, then we moved to the Czech Republic and uh, I'll describe what, what uh, some of their traditions, which have a, a, a much richer, deeper, at least in the past, history of, of Christianity, uh, and yet those traditions that have now come into what's known as the most atheist country in the world uh, is totally disconnected to any idea of Jesus and the Savior. Well, not totally disconnected, they just don't see the connections. And so they have what's the, what I'd call the good, the bad, and the ugly in terms of Christmas traditions. Uh, the good was we arrived on December 17th. Uh, into, our, into the Czech Republic, and uh, one of the elders' wives brought us about five pounds of Christmas cookies that she had been working on for weeks. Uh, they just have this massive production in their kitchen, and they are the best Christmas cookies ever. Now, now the ugly or, or the bad, I don't know which category this falls in, is if you were to go to the Czech Republic now and go to any town square, you're going to see giant uh, tubs. And in those tubs, they're going to have their Christmas Eve meal. Do you know what their Christmas Eve meal is? Carp. Yeah, like the dirt fish, uh, garbage fish of, of our ponds. That's the tradition. You can Google it, Christmas carp, Czech Republic, and, and sure enough. So you can go down there now, like Red Lobster, pick out your carp uh, for your meal for the family, and then uh, you can get it chopped up there, and there's blood on the streets. Or you can do what most people do. They put it in a trash bag full of water, take it home, put it in their bathtub, and let it swim around for a few days, let the kids pet it, and uh, no joke, so we just arrived, the pastor of the church we were partnering with invited us over to, and, and go into their apartment with their one bathroom, and in their tub, a few days before Christmas, is a carp. I'm like, you guys don't shower, or, uh, or you shower with this thing, I don't know, and the, the kids are like picking it up, and it's flopping around, 
And I'm like, okay, that's weird. But, uh, and then they don't set up their Christmas tree like uh, in November like us. It's, it's a Christmas Eve thing. So they, they put it up real quick, throw all sorts of gaudy tinsel on it and some lights. Uh, and as they're eating their Christmas carp, one of the parents or, or uncles or one of the uh, people will sneak out of the room because you know who brings Christmas presents under the tree in the Czech Republic? Uh, not, not Santa Claus. We'll get to him in a minute. Uh, it's not Santa Claus. Someone will sneak out, they'll put the trees, and a bell will ring, and that will be the note to the children who are eating their meal in the other room that the baby Jesus had just come and brought presents for everybody in the Czech Republic. That's, uh, he's like Santa Claus slash Jesus. That's who brings the presents. Uh, so it, it's kind of strange. And then maybe the bad <laughs> So we have St. Nicholas, they call it Mikolash, and on Mikolash will come, and, and he's kind of, I was talking to my kids about this, and I said, describe that to me again, because uh, he's now an angel, and he carries around, he's like the chief angel, and he carries around the book of life, and with him comes some other angels, and so he might be the, the mayor of the, the village or some older students, and, and they'll be dressed as other angels in white and wings and gold sash and all that, and uh, uh, they, they'll come into the classroom, but that's not all who will come into the classroom, because they'll have other adults from the town center or other uh, older students. They're dressed up as demons, and they've got chains, and they're like smack in the wall, and they're like, uh, like terrifying the kids. And so the kids now have to sing a song or recite a, a poem in Czech about uh, Mikolash. And uh, my daughter Hannah was saying, I think, uh, I think they gave me a pass because if you don't sing the song perfectly, or if you grumble, or if your name's not written in the book of life, guess what? The demons come, put a bag over your head, take you out of the classroom and lock you in a closet. I'm not joking. First graders, this is what they do to them. Uh, and the, the, all the kids whose name is in the book of life get chocolate and uh, oranges and all that stuff. And so uh, it's quite a terrifying thing. And yet um, there's this massive disconnect. Like my, my kid came home. They went to public school in the Czech Republic. They had drawn a, a nativity scene in public school. And yet... Uh, no one knows why we're, why we're filling in this, like, why we're coloring this thing. And, and so uh, in the Czech Republic, another friend of mine who has a church, he went and did a man-on-the-street interview and, and just to kind of get people's ground-level assessment of what Christmas is about. And uh, they asked this guy, and a very common, a very common uh, curse phrase in the Czech Republic is, uh, Jesus Maria Joseph, which means Jesus married Joseph. That's, so if you don't know something, you're like, oh, Jesus married Joseph. I don't know. Like, that's the, a curse phrase. But they asked him, uh, do you know who the parents of Jesus were? And he said, Jesus, Mary, Joseph, I don't know. <laughs> and you're like, are you serious? <laughs> like, but, but that's where the, like, the spiritual blinders, the disconnect was. And uh, same thing in Japan. I remember writing a, a sermon in a busy Starbucks one day. And uh, they love all things American. So uh, Japan's uh, Starbucks is uh, pumping in, you know, everyone thinks Starbucks worships Satan. Well, not in Japan. They're pumping in Christmas music, like what we just sang, like gospel-focused Christmas music is coming through the speakers. I'm writing my sermon, and I just stop for a moment, and I'm like, oh, my word. The gospel is being proclaimed, but no one knows it. No one cares. This is just the jingle of the season. And I said, what a tragedy to get so close to Christmas and totally miss the point. 
And so this month, as we've started our Advent series, we've said, let's step outside of, uh, of the busyness and all the, maybe all the traditions that are added onto it. Uh, and I'm not anti-Christmas. I love it. We, we've got the tree up. We got the lights. We're excited for the presents that are coming. Like, don't, don't hear me say that, but, but there, there's just something that we need to do to just pause. We said in week one, to pause to see and savor Jesus. And, and then we said, also, Advent has been this historic time to uh, not only look back, but, but for the church, it's been this time to pull apart, to fast and to wait for Jesus' coming return again. And how God has used has good purposes in our waiting, and He always had good purposes in our waiting. And today, as we, we look at this scene in, in Luke chapter 2, the reason I mention all those traditions is because, at least in the West, even if you don't have any uh, in America, if you don't have any background in church, if this is your first time in a while, we're glad you're here, uh, but you probably know this story. Uh, the, the, the challenge for us is what I'll call a warm-hearted sentimentality about this story. Because this story is so uh, portrayed, like, so 14 years ago, uh, I, the Ashman family got our big acting debut, and so I was Joseph, and, and Jennifer was Mary, and six-month-old Zoe was the baby Jesus, and at our church, we had a, a live nativity scene, and they brought in sheep, and I, I think over there, they had some antelope, because that's, that's what first-century Palestine would have been like, and uh, I mean, it was just so cute, and everyone smiled, and, and petted Zoe's little head, and uh, baby Jesus, rather, and, and uh, you know that just fills you with warm feelings. Or, or think of the Christmas pageants that we do. That that this passage, this chapter is going to tell us about. You, you know, you got some kids stumbling on stage like drunken sailors and uh, waving to their moms and forgetting their lines, and and then you've got like seven-year-old Mary and eight-year-old Joseph, and and they've got a plastic baby doll in, in some hay, and they, they pick it up, and, and they're asking for their lines, and they're singing some songs, and it's so precious. And some kids, man, we just got to get them up there. We can't trust them with any lines. You're a tree, and uh, you, you can be some sheep over here. Just stand there. Just please just stand there, uh, whatever the case may be. And so we just think, man, isn't that warm-hearted kind of, that's what Christmas is all about. And I'm just going to say, as, as, as much as is possible now, as we, before we get into this passage, we have to set that aside. We have to ask some questions of the text and so that we can enter into the angst of this text, the, 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 the tragedy of this text, the tension, the darkness, the battle that's going on spiritually. All these things are in this text. But for us in America, we can miss Jesus because of the Christmas pageant Jesus. And that's not what's going on in this text. And so, uh, again, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we just want to use our imagination to step into the story, step into the tension, and ask the question, what, why does Christmas exist? Why does Christmas exist? And I asked my daughters that this week, and, and they gave several good answers, like, so the Savior could come uh, for forgiveness, uh, to bring peace, to bring hope. And I said, all those are, are good and right. And then one of my daughters says, Christmas exists for the glory of God. I said, you, you've been listening to me practice this sermon. I said, but that's not all. Did you hear the other half? And she's like, oh, I don't know the other half. I said, well, here, here's why Christmas exists. Christmas exists for the glory of God and the joy of all people. 
And if that sounds familiar to you, I hope it does if you spend any time with us because that's our vision. And Redemption Parker exists for the glory of God and the joy of all people. And we're going to see in this passage that Christmas exists for the glory of God and the joy of all people. So as we go to the text now, uh, we'll start in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And I'll just want to go before the Father one more time and ask Him to be our teacher now. Father, pray, Lord, that as we open Your Word and as we come to a very familiar text, that somehow, by Your grace, Your Spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what You're saying to the church today through Your Word. So, Holy Spirit, would you anoint uh, this time? Would you anoint phrases and points and, and application uh, to each situation and each person here that we might go away having seen and savored you more and having known and embraced the meaning of Christmas? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, there's three paragraphs that we're going to look at here. And in each one, we, we see this Ideas supporting that Christmas exists for the glory of God and the joy of all people. Let's start in verse 1. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius, Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Again, so Luke is a first-rate historian. He's a doctor and a historian, and he studies the facts, and he gets the story. And so what Luke is doing right now is he's saying, this isn't a wouldn't it be nice, this isn't a once upon a time kind of story. He's saying in a real time and place that is verifiably a verifiable fact that Caesar Augustus was on the throne and Quirinius was the governor. At that time, go check the records, a census was issued by the most powerful man in the world, Caesar Augustus. Oh, and he was powerful. Uh, when he was 16, the Roman order Cicero said he is bright, talented, should be honored, praised, and eliminated. But one by one, he eliminated all of his enemies, and by the year 26 BC, he was named by the Roman Senate Caesar Augustus. And every year we mark his life when we get to August on our calendar that's how powerful he was. He was known as the king of kings and the ruler of rulers. He says, my peace I give you. And it was a kind of peace. It was known as the Pax Romana or the peace of Rome, that Rome had so extended itself that it, within the borders at least there was peace, but it was a bloody kind of peace and an expensive kind of peace. And so he gets an idea one day and he says, I need to figure out who's in my kingdom so I can raise some more taxes. And so this is the real historical setting in which this starts. But there's a problem. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is in Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, we know that uh, from the Bible, we know that child is Jesus. And uh, Jesus is, is conceived up in Nazareth by the Holy Spirit. He's hanging out in Bethlehem, think, here to Fort Collins, about 90 miles north. 
And, and all of a sudden, uh, there's this prophecy, though, that from 500 years ago from Micah that says, when the Messiah comes, he's going to be born in this little out-of-the-way, insignificant little town with maybe a population of 500 people named Bethlehem. Let's just look at that passage real quick. It'll be on the screen. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and here's the prophecy of Micah. In the middle of all this, uh, if you read the whole book, it's in the middle of God uh, saying he's bringing judgment on the Israelites for abandoning him. But in the middle of this, there's hope, and we see it in Micah 5 too. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, oh wait, I'll stop right there. So it says that the Messiah is going to become, but his, his, his history is from, from ancient days, meaning he's eternal and he's going to come to Bethlehem. But, but, but Jesus and Mary and Joseph, uh, Jesus in the womb is not in Bethlehem. And the most powerful man in the world, if you ask anyone at that time, who's the most powerful? They'd point to Caesar Augustus. But Luke is raising a question in the reader's mind and in our mind. Well, who really is in control here. Was God up in heaven, was the Father in heaven thinking, man, I, I really hope someone comes through for me. I don't know how I'm going to get Jesus down 90 miles to, be, to fulfill that prophecy I sent through Micah. No. The, see, everyone would think that Caesar's in control, but here's what you see automatically right away, that there's God is in control. What you see is in Christmas, it reinforces the, the sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign. This week, uh, R.C. Sproul, who was uh, a kind of mentor of mine through the radio, uh, passed away. But what I learned from R.C. Sproul is to have a high, high, high view of God's sovereignty and control over all things. I quoted him in my uh, doctrinal thesis for seminary to graduate, and the quote was, there are no maverick molecules in the universe. And what he meant by that is there is no part of the universe that is somehow outside of God's sovereign control, that he is in control. He's in control of Kim Jong-un and President Trump. He's in control of every nation. He doesn't fret when, the, when every four years a new election cycle comes up. He's in control of every single molecule that has ever been and will ever be. And so the invitation for us in Christmas is to rest in that, is to rest in that. See, we in, in suburban America live most of our days with the illusion that we're in control because we make choices and they seem to lead, A leads to B leads to C, and we, we go to the schools we want, we marry who we want, we live where we want, but, but if you live long enough, even in the nice controlled safety, uh, climate-controlled environment that is Parker, Colorado, you will, a day will come when you'll find out you're not in control. Now, if you don't hold on to that truth before that day comes, two things will happen. Either now, if you think you're in control, you will live a life trying to control and manage everything. You'll either live a life of fear, saying, man, I, I can't take risks, I can't go out because I've got to preserve my life, or you'll live a life of pride, saying, I do whatever I want whenever I want, and things happen my way. But when you understand this truth, this Christmas truth, that God is sovereign over everything, you can rest in that. 
And when life hits and the doctor's report comes in or things don't go as you had hoped or planned, you can have peace, you can have hope, and you can have joy because God is for your good and for his glory, for those who are loved by God and called according to his purposes. So we rest in God's sovereign control. So that's the first thing. It says, and... um, uh, to be registered, Mary is betrothed, who was with child, verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Okay, so again, God is not surprised by this. He's not bummed out that when they went to the door of the inn, uh, the guy saw him and said, well, you you have no social standing. Clearly, you have no money to pay for the room. I I realize that your wife's pregnant, and and I imagine Joseph just pleading with him, please, she's about to give birth. And and they had such little standing and such little prestige and, and, and status in culture and society. And Bethlehem was overrun by the census. They said, well, not here. And so they go off to the manger and give birth in a manger surrounded by animals, and they lay him in a manger. Because what is God doing? He's saying, when I leave my throne in glory and I come down the ladder, I'm not just going to come partway down. I'm not going to live as an earthly king. I'm not going to live with prestige. I'm not going to be a celebrity. I'm not going to be born into a family of means and and ability. I'm going to be born to the poorest of the poor. Maybe at best, Mary's 15 years old at this point. She's a, a, a housemaid, think basically a slave to someone. Joseph is a, a penniless, broke, maybe out of work, or just in an internship or apprenticeship kind of a, a first century carpentry work. They've got nothing for themselves. And, and so this is where God, in his sovereign grace, chooses to enter into the world and they lay him in a manger. Well, let's look at the next paragraph. It says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So the first paragraph, we see that God's glory is seen in his sovereign control over all things. And now we see another part of the meaning of Christmas, the shepherds. We've talked about this, but, but shepherds in the Bible, that the imagery gets redeemed. But in first century cultures, shepherds were, were of the bottom rung of society, right? It's the, it's the night crew at Burger King. It's the shepherds. They, they've got no status, no pull. They, they were considered per, perennial, uh, unclean. They couldn't come into temple. They, they were with animals all day. And it, as a job career field, attracted kind of the down and out, the sinners, the thieves, the liars. That, that, those are the kind of people that got these jobs. And they would, that, they would watch the flock. And if any, any of their flock went off, that was coming out of their paycheck. And, and if they were to get paid, they'd just get paid in more sheep. But the thing is, if you were a righteous first century Jew, you were taught that they were probably stole that sheep, so you weren't to buy from them. So there was a systemic injustice going on. So if you got paid in sheep and you needed to buy something, you needed to sell your sheep, but no one would buy your sheep because you were a crook and a thief. Your testimony, along with a woman's testimony, was never permitted in court. And from the very beginning, 
Jesus is saying, I'm going to lift up the, the lowest and I'm going to make them the highest. It's what, what theologians might call the kingdom economics Kingdom economics. So in our economics, you know, that's my undergrad degree, you know, supply and demand, here's what's valuable, here's what's uh, efficient, here's who we're going to hire, and, and that works for us, right? Like we're looking to hire some church planning uh, uh, interns and stuff like that. We're not looking for guys that can't tie their shoes and uh, don't know the Bible and all these things. So, so we're following a world economics, but Jesus came to turn that all upside down. He said, the last shall be first and the first shall be last, and he continually challenges the world system, and he comes to Joseph and Mary, and he comes to give the first gospel proclamation, or, or the first gospel proclamation comes to these shepherds, untrustworthy, thieving sinners. And when it comes, it says this, and the Lord, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them, the glory of the Lord shone around them. So that word glory is often translated weight, and I like that. The weight of, of what's true shown around them. Throughout the Bible, whenever the glory of the Lord comes around, the number one response is people fall on their face and hope that they die. Because for the most part, most of our days, again, kind of like the control and sovereign thing, we think we're pretty good, right? We think we're better than most. And, and you know, if if, uh, if, you were to, if I was to bring up my youngest daughter up here and, and be like, okay, well, look at our bank accounts. I got her beat. Um, I mean, it's, it's getting closer now, but if we have a math contest, um, you know, I still can beat her. If, uh, if we're out playing hoops, I'll dunk on her head. Like, there's, that's no, there's no doubt. I will look like I'm pretty awesome in that moment if, if the comparison is with me and my youngest daughter. But now all of a sudden LeBron James walks in the room. My bank account, I, I, I look like, a, like Mary and Joseph. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm sure he's smarter than me. But, uh, and then if we get on the court, man, it's, it's, it's no joke. But, but so when, when the glory of God shows up and these guys who uh, I've kind of just embraced this life, we're, we're never going to be righteous, we're never going to be holy, so let's just go full on in it and imagine, you know, the, the, the boys' room, locker room talk in a high school. That's probably kind of the, the edification of the conversation they're having out in the field at night. And in that instance, the glory of God shows up and it says... They feared a great fear is what it actually says. Actually, the word fear, great there is Greek word mega. So they had a mega fear. They were filled with mega fear. And the angel said to them, the first thing almost they, what angels always say, fear not. Just the presence of the angelic being terrifies them. But he says, fear not. And look, for behold, I bring you gospel. I mean, good news. That's the word gospel. I bring you good news of great joy. There's the word mega again. You have mega fear, but, but guess what? I'm bringing you gospel of mega joy. That will be for all the people. And here it is. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So if the first paragraph invites us to rest in God's sovereignty, the second paragraph invites us in Christmas to rejoice in the gospel of mega joy. That a Savior has come, and He's come all the way down the ladder to reach us. Go to, uh, I have it on the screen, Philippians chapter 2. Paul talks about this here. 
In verse 5, he talks about Jesus' coming down and this good news of mega joy. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. That's Christmas. And then it very quickly moves on to Easter. He humbled himself to becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When you hit death on the cross, you hit rock bottom. But verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love that passage. I mean, in a day when we have kneeling controversies, there'll be no controversy in that day. You will either kneel in glad submission to, to the sovereign God of the universe, or you will kneel in, in forced submission to the holiness of God and His righteousness. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Kim Jong-un's knee is going to bow Donald Trump's knee is going to bow. Your knee is going to bow. And the invitation of Christmas is that there's good news of mega joy and that we can rejoice in that. God's glory is seen in the proclamation of the good news of mega joy. And it continues on. It's going to be for all the people. That's why Christmas exists, for the glory of God and all and the joy of all people. Verse 11, For unto you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord is born. And this will be a sign for you, says to the shepherds. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. Okay, that's normal. Most babies that time and today are wrapped in swaddling cloths. But here's the sign, and lying in a manger. Like, no one does that. I've spent time in barns horse barns and cattle barns. At no point did I walk in there and say, I'm just going to take a nap right here. This looks pretty good. Just kind of lay my head down right... No, never an option. But God is showing from the beginning. Jesus is going to come all the way down so, so He can reach every person. This is good news of great joy for all the people. And that includes the shepherds. That, that's mega joy news for them. That includes you today to renew your hope in the joy that God came all the way down to get you. The Bible says God's arm is not too short to save. There is no one that is below where Jesus came down to that he can't get. He came all the way down so whoever he wills, he can bring up back up with him. So it's good news of mega joy for your neighbors. It's good news of mega joy for Parker. It's good news for mega joy for the multitudes out of China, the multitudes out of South America. It's good news for Canadians. It's good news for all the people. And because we can rest in the sovereignty of God and rejoice in the good news, we can then respond like the shepherds do. But before they get a chance to respond, we're not done here. Verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest 
and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. God gets the glory. We get the peace. God gets the glory. We get the joy. God gets the glory. We get the hope. We get all the promises of Christmas. This is better than warm-hearted sentimentality. This is amazing news of mega joy. And the angels, they can't hold it back anymore. The sky opens up. And if you were a person of means in the first century and you had some wealth, you would hire heralds when the firstborn son was born to go out into the streets and say, such and such family has had a boy. Praise God, or whatever the case may be. And depending on your status and your wealth, you you would get a whole choir. You would get whatever the case may be. Our, our equivalent would be kind of like uh, wedding and birth announcements. You know, some people on just like, uh, you know, scrap piece of paper. And other people, they have like gold enmeshed into the, the announcement. And you're like, oh, these, these people have, are, uh, are people of means. And so, uh, but, but look at the heralds that come to Jesus. Oh, he's a person of means. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And the greatest concert the world has ever heard was heard by a few shepherds on the side of a hill and some sheep that night. Because <laughs> God was going to herald the, the birth of his son into the world. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. So we can rest, we can rejoice, and then we see, like the shepherds, what we can do. Verse 15 when the angels went away from them into, the, into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go and do a word study on angels. <laughs> Figure this thing out. That's no. Let us go and meet weekly and just keep this news to ourselves. Let's just do that and just continue to remind ourselves, wasn't that awesome? <laughs> That's not, not what they do. Uh, no, you know what they do. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Let us go see this thing the Lord has made known to us. Oh, that the church would, would have this kind of attitude that when God reveals something of himself, that it would stir in us not only a, a rest in his sovereignty, a rejoicing in worship, but a response to revelation, Right? Like, I think that's our, our huge problem. What, 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 these shepherds, they don't know anything. They, they don't know the Torah. They don't know, but they do know good news. They know the gospel. They don't know how it's going to work out. They just know that this baby boy is the Messiah, and they need to go find him. They said, God said it, let's go see. That should be the default heart posture of every believer. God said it, let's go see. God said it's better to give than to receive. Let's go see. Let's, let's try them on that. God said you're to go to all the nations, and, and when you go, surely I'll be with you always. So, so, so Jesus, you're going to go with us when we, when we go to our neighbors, and we go into the city, and we're gonna, we go to China, and we go everywhere in this world. You'll be with us, and your presence will be manifested in our midst. Okay, you said it. Let's go see. We live in a time of more knowledge about God than, any, than in the history of the planet. Like, I have 25 commentaries I can read on this passage. But the Word of God, we have to get this. this the Word of God is given for our transformation, not our information. 
I'm for studying theology. I want us to love the Word, but if it only means that we get big heads and theologically right and those people out there are wrong, then we're totally missing the point, which is stop. Because in the first century, you know who wins a Bible contest? The Pharisees and the scribes. Next week we see it. So some guys come and they're like, hey, uh, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? They asked Herod this. And Herod asked the Pharisees and the scribes. And from memory, they're like, no problem. That's Bethlehem. But they don't go. They know the information, but it's not enough to move them to go and see the things that God is doing. Let's not be a church that just says, we know a lot about God. Wouldn't that be awesome if we just gathered here and maybe in our homes, but never Said, God said it, let's go see. They go see, and their faith is rewarded. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph. They saw the sign, and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So, So the first gospel proclamation comes from angels to shepherds, the untrustworthy, you can't believe them, they're probably going to steal your stuff, watch watch your purse when they come into the room kind of people. They get the gospel, God said it, let's go see, and they're the first people to proclaim the gospel. I know it's true in my life, but it's true in the church that the best evangelists are people that are new Christians. Because they they haven't learned that you should probably know more information before you tell anybody. It's a lie that we believe. I think it's from the enemy that that is, you you can't tell anybody until you have all the answers. You'll never have all the answers. And the enemy wins. Good. You'll never share the gospel with anybody. But they share the gospel. They don't care that their reputation precedes them and that people probably won't believe them. In fact, that's the implication of verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. These are shepherds. The gospel's coming through shepherds. Are we supposed to believe these guys? But, but someone does believe them, verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in, their, in her heart. Mary of no status, she, she, she didn't have any uh, kind of pride to, to say, well, I'm better than these guys. She's, she also had some experiences with God, and she's like, well, some, some things are going on. I, I know I just had a baby, and that wasn't supposed to happen, and so I'm going to listen to these guys. And so if we are to rest, we are to rejoice, and we are to respond whenever God reveals something to us. You know how much of a miracle it is that anyone would be a Christian in Parker, Colorado in 2017. It's as big a miracle as shepherds on the side of the hill. We have, we don't pray, give us this day our daily bread and mean it. We don't have to, most of us. We have means, we have safety, we have comfort, we have security. We have all the things that are our typical means of God to draw people to himself so that if you have any affection in your heart, any awareness of God's glory and majesty, that is a gift of God to you and that should cause a response of worship and rejoicing and of going. And that's what they did. Verse 20, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. 
They go back. They're changed inwardly. They're, they're praising God. They're glorifying God. But outwardly, their circumstances are the same. They go back to being shepherds. They go back to being distrusted. But they're changed. They've heard good news of mega joy. They can rest in the sovereignty of God. And they will respond and tell this story probably every day for the rest of their lives. Oh, church, may we rest in God this season. Whatever you're going through, maybe that's the thing that this message is for you, that, that you need to rest in God. Your plans are not working out, but guess what? God is working all things for your good and for his glory. Maybe you need to be rejoicing. Maybe, maybe uh, you're more of an Eeyore than a, than a shepherd that is rejoicing. Maybe you just need to say, this is a season where I can embrace good news of mega joy. And all of us that have, been, have seen God reveal himself, whether it be through his word, the proclamation, the, the songs, or even as we come to this table, may that cause us to respond and being gospel heralds as the shepherds were. To that end, I want to pray for us, and then we'll come to this table together. Father, I thank you for your grace to us, God. God, we have been given so much that it, it so often can blind us to our need for you. But you came all the way down and you said, the first shall be last. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. God, the only requirement is to recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. And the only way we can do that is by your grace to us. And so open our eyes to that. And Lord, even as we turn our attention to this table, it's a, another time to just assess your gospel in our lives, to come to this table. So Father, give us rest, give us joy in our worship, and give us a response that honors you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.